We arrive here today to debate at social distances from each other. There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RTE News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me in studio um, today is Sandra Hurley of our political podcast fame. Um, Sandra, you might know it. But you've been appointed as um, Cork correspondent. <laughs> great. You've been vaccine correspondent. You've been money correspondent. Anyway, yeah, now yeah. it's no, Cork. It's great. All these promotions are fantastic. I know. My CV's just so long. There's so much money goes into this podcast. <laughs> it's just shocking. Um, but Cork in particular, because there was a peculiarity about um, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin um, this week. A very proud Cork man, but he became doubly so. He became Corky. Um, during an interaction with um, the independent TD, Danny Healy-Ray, who'd suggested that he'd read somewhere, but not quite sure exactly where, that uh, Micheál Martin had given a commitment that he was going to reduce the size of the national herd on the basis that this would lower our uh, emissions. We have a, a clip of it first, and then we're going to get you to try and interpret just why Micheál Martin was more Cork than he normally was. I, I can't believe the disinformation. You, it's in the papers, man. Uh, I remember you asked me, I remember you asking me where did I, you know, uh, where did we get the evidence base about sort of non-compliance and so on like that, and we got it subsequently afterwards in terms of other issues. And now you produce something here that you can't tell me where you got the quote from? I, quoted Boyle. I'm not quoted, and I challenge you, I challenge through the chair, I challenge through the chair the deputy to produce the quote where I said I'm in favour of reduction of the herd. Because I never said it. And I'm not in favour. I'm not in favour. Make it up, man. I said his No, it's not good enough through the chair that you would say something that's untrue. Well, and you should be thrown. Well, you disprove me so it was wrong. Because others are writing so, and I, I didn't write it. You can't come in here and make up everything every day. I didn't make it up. You did make Any it up. Day. You and made that, it up. That's unfavorable, Tisha. Just say that I make it up things here every you day. Just did. I came in here about three after you today. Just did. did I make it up? <laughs> yes. I made up about three general apple. No. no, you made up about the quotation in relation to the reduction of national heritage. You said that I was coming in here, here every day. With all that dramatization, that's, that's totally and absolutely unfair. It's incorrect. There you go. Um, Sandra, I think he was sounding more cork than usual. I'm just wondering whether he was enjoying it riffing against his neighbour, Danny Heedy Ray. You know, I think he looked like he really enjoyed it. And we've seen them sparring before. There's something else recently about a cataract bus, one of those kind of things, and it seemed to set the two of them off. And I thought Micheál Martin seemed very chilled, maybe nearly let slip at one point, but held back. So, uh, you know, in keeping with uh, being in the doll, of course, uh, using proper language. But yes, he did go a little bit more cork, I think, just a little bit more high pitched, a little bit more excited, perhaps. Yeah. And what's that phrase? It was sort of slightly muffled, but he, he seemed to suggest maybe why don't you... And then he just stopped. Yeah, yeah, he, he trailed off. There's been some speculation as to what he was going to say. He didn't go do wanna, there. Do you want to offer any opinion? No, I, I couldn't. I couldn't possibly. Not in this podcast, but no, it's not the right forum. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was a, a classic core carry match there again. Yeah, because if Mihola Han was here, we could have got him to say something to annoy you. And then <laughs> just to see if it actually were, could be a scientific I'd experiment. I remind you about uh, Kerry going out of the championship this year. That, that, that just rubbed the salt in the wound. Exactly. See, it's an empty chair, so we can't say anything. <laughs> anyway, joining us today is um, 
Jennifer Carol McNeil, who is Fine Gael's um, TD for Dunleary and also their equality spokesperson. Um, Jennifer, how are you? Uh, I'm grand. I'm grand. I'm trying to practice my Cork accent. I'm roaring laughing here in this little room. Are you, you have from me Cork in. as well that we didn't no, know? No, 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 no. But I trained as a solicitor there and uh, so I got to spend three brilliant years in Cork. And one of the um, questions that I got asked with great suspicion by people in Cork was, you know, they'd look at me coming from Dublin to Cork to work in Cork and they'd be, why'd you come to Cork, girl? And I'd, and I'd look at them. I figured, I figured out the answer pretty quickly and they said, um, I said, uh, like, why wouldn't I? And they said, there you are, girl. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me about three years. I understand exactly where Micheál Martin uh, was coming from and uh, it, uh, I, my mother still gives out to me because it comes out from time to time ha. but it's of course the best accent to do to, 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 to get excited in it's the best accent to deliver a, a really withering put down and the Taoiseach showed extraordinary discipline there I thought Well let's move on because Neil um, Martin was really enjoying himself this week he was at a um, press conference and in the press conference he was announcing the latest issue in relation to COVID-19 and the easing of restrictions fairly serious stuff and yet at the same time there was um, a, a sort of a funny aside when he got on to talk about nightclubs and what should happen in a nightclub once the nightclubs would reopen. Listen to this. What traditionally happens in a nightclub will continue to happen in a nightclub. Um, but there will be... <laughs> 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 right. um, so the practicalities will apply, you know. Practicalities will apply. I thought that was what rather adroit. He didn't actually mention what he thought might be happening mm-hmm. in a nightclub, which is probably wise for someone in their 60s. But it's probably better that I don't comment on what I remember happening in a nightclub either, just in case my husband is listening. But <laughs> I think, uh, but I think you know, look, it's 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 interesting to see the nightclubs get back and going, and uh, I know that um, people are very excited about that. And look, it's 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 a bit of normality, and they, they have all the they have all the appropriate cautions. But we we'll, maybe we'll have to wait in reports. As the mother of a young child, I don't see myself getting to a nightclub anytime soon. But you never know. Well, this is it. They're going to open, and um, I think it was the Licensed Fitness Association who would represent many of the nightclubs saying this is something that was going to happen for the first time in 1985 days, 585 days. And it just seemed to me, um, while there was an awful lot of detail being worked out about who might do what at what particular time and what you can do at a live event that you can't really do at a nightclub, but um, Jennifer Carol McNeil, it seemed to be suggesting that the government was moving into territory where it's saying, we are now living with COVID and it's individual responsibility which is effectively going to determine the outcome. More or less you're saying, it's over to you now, Joe Public. I, I think there's an element of that and I, you know that's never going to go away as long as we're dealing with an air, airborne pandemic and people have shown extraordinary uh, resilience and the ability to adapt as needed um, but you know there's still quite serious restrictions there the use of the COVID certs which is which is a liberation in so many ways um, continues to be able to, 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 to for people to do things safely particularly over winter when people want to dine indoors much more than they would have had the opportunity to um, you know during the summer so it's a bit of both and uh, we are going to have to get through it through the winter and, and hopefully I mean the real thing that we need to hope is that there's no variant that breaks through the vaccines that we continue to have the supply that we have been able to enjoy in recent months that we have to be able to roll out a booster programme. They're the the really important things now. Um but we are we, we are living differently, aren't we? And we've learned to do that. And and you know, when you look at I know that there's like for example, there's a protest outside the doll today and people are, you know, upset about different aspects of it. But in general, you look at the scale of the number of people who have got vaccinated, you look at how together Irish people were about adapting to all the restrictions at different stages, and it's it, it's really impressive. Not the government side of it, you know, no, no, but yeah. the, like what people did. It's brilliant. But I'm just wondering whether it could be something of a false dawn. Here we are at the end of October and we're talking about nightclubs and live events coming back. And yet we are with more cases and hospitals under pressure 
And if you've got a bank holiday weekend, followed by Halloween, followed by 10 days, that maybe by mid-November, um, we're actually going to have to talk about reversing things. I certainly hope not. I mean, that's always a possibility with this virus and we have found ourselves in, in false dawns before. The big difference, of course, being the vaccinations. And, you know, I know people now who have COVID, but they're not getting seriously ill. Uh, people who not didn't necessarily have it before. The vaccination is, is the huge protector. Um, of course, we would hope that more people would take the opportunity to be vaccinated. It's still there. There's still a sizable number of people who haven't been vaccinated. Um, and of course, we don't want the health... You know, that's that's the difference between, say, this time last year and, and, and where we are now. Um, um, yeah. uh, you know, we have to, we have to do have to get on with life as well. And we are still, you know, a cautious society. I talk to people, you know, I was talking to one lady who'd booked a seat at a, or, you know, a ticket at a hundred percent gig and she was thinking, well, it's all very well at going ahead, but I'm just not sure if I'm comfortable with it. And so you can see people exercising their own discretion in different situations. What's the right thing to do and what am I comfortable with doing? What's your sense of this, um, Sandra, in political terms outside of, say, just Fine Gael, which Jennifer was talking about there, the government, maybe also the opposition that on the one hand, the government is being very clear what it wants to do is keep open what it has opened and yet we've got this mid-November issue and looking towards Christmas and maybe things being on a knife edge again in just a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, I think there, there's caution all around. I think if you look across the opposition, though, the, most of them aren't really advocating anything different. I don't think anybody is advocating going against the Neffet advice and the government went with exactly what Neffet prescribed this uh, this week. I, I think where the government is more vulnerable, perhaps, is on antigen tests, you know, They've broken with Neffet on that. Dr. Tony Hulhan on radio again today was really clear that he is not a fan of antigen testing at all. And you've got some in the opposition who've been pushing them for a really long time. And the government didn't seem to take that leap to introduce them and to bring them out across various sectors and to help use them as a tool. And I think that that's a point of difference. Where do you stand on the question of antigen testing, Jennifer? I always thought it was a very exciting opportunity to get, to grant more freedom. I remember writing to the Minister for Health about it back in October 2020. But I really do recognise where Tony Holohan is coming from. You know, we don't always get the advice that we want uh, sometimes. And you have to respect what he's saying. There's a role for it. I mean, I remember doing it before the vaccinations were, were fully rolled out, going into, say, a medical appointment or, or something of that kind. And I thought it was, you know, so efficient and so effective. But if Tony Holohan isn't happening about the broader efficacy of it, then you you know, it does it does create questions. I remember arguing with, say, Padder Tabin about vac- you know, antigen testing and why hadn't it been rolled out. Of course it is. It's been used in meat factories, it's been used in certain childcare settings and nursing homes and healthcare settings. But the biggest protection of all is the vaccination. You know, and there's no amount of antigen testing that overrides that and overrides that um in terms of the well being of a person, the protection of a person, the management of the virus in society. And really I think, you know, that's where the focus continues to need to be to try and reduce fears that people might have in relation to vaccinations to try and get people who had first doses to figure out why they haven't come back for the second dose and try and encourage and, and help with that if the government can help with that uh, and to try to get as many people as vaccinated as possible. But what about say some of the international comparisons say like another European state in Denmark in Copenhagen they are big users of antigen testing and um, both in universities and work practices and they see this as a means of being able to ensure that society gets back to normal and isn't living on this constant edge of are we going back to lockdown or not? Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. But, you know, every time I've looked at European comparisons of one kind or another, at, at every stage of this pandemic, there's always been more complicating facts than that, you know. Um, and everybody has had a different experience and different troughs and, and peaks in that experience in, in different ways. So, like, it's all it all it all informs the case. But we have actually managed this pandemic reasonably well, comparatively, even with our own troughs and peaks in terms of management. Yeah. Uh, and, and we just have to accept that a lot of the different situations are, are very different. Like, for example, Spain, they were wearing masks on the street uh, at a time when we weren't. But, you know, they were eating indoors in a different way. You can pick any point from any European comparator and, and look to it. But actually, we're, we have done reasonably well uh, throughout the board. And that's, inter- you know, that's now internationally recognised. We have to just look at ourselves as well. OK, you, as we said in the introduction, you're also Fine Gael's equality spokesperson. You were speaking in the Doyle um, just last night and this in relation to it was a, a sort of a powerful speech in which you were talking about people who you know the situations that uh, women find themselves in when it comes to employment and how um, unfairness um, remains there isn't um, equality we'll just play a clip of, from what you said I'm thinking about the in-house lawyer in a corporate doing the exact same job as her colleague for 25% less pay and knows that she cannot litigate really even though it's the law because she'll get a name in the sector for having done so. It's easier just to write it out, wait it out and leave when another opportunity comes. I'm thinking tonight about the professional women that I know and who many will know who shifted to three-day weeks to manage the needs of their young families when their professional partners stayed at five-day weeks impacting their activity, their inclusion, their opportunity, their pay, their pension. And I'm wondering how many corporates in Ireland have a substantial number of their male employees with young children opting for a four-day week for those very busy and very difficult early years. Jennifer, one of the things you're talking about there is just the issues. And listening to those issues, they're very, very familiar. I'm just We're only playing an excerpt from what you actually had to say. To what extent are you saying that things have not changed or are you saying that things are about to change? I'm saying that those are experiences of people I know, uh, contemporaries of mine who have come through the, 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 the sort of the magic promise of university, professional education, go out and work and so on and so on and so on. Um, I remember uh, that, that, that lawyer, and this was... You know, before she had children, literally doing the same job. I mean, literally doing the same job. And uh, she knew that the other guy was getting 25% more. And uh, she just waited it out, waited it out. The other opportunity came and now she's doing something else. Um, similarly, you know, I recall a, a contemporary shifting, as I said, to that to that three-day week. And I remember saying, no, what are you doing? But the reality is the commercial culture was never such that her husband could walk into the, his, the, the commercial firm in which he worked. And let's face it, most of Ireland works in the private sector. You know, this is across the board. Um, but worked in, go into the, the, the and say, you know, my wife's just had a second baby. We've two young children. I'd like to do a four day week or I'd, look, I'd like to talk about an option for a four day week. You know, like that's not the corporate culture in Ireland at the moment, particularly, you, you know, particularly for men. And until it becomes, until that changes and until that becomes visible in that world, really nothing culturally is going to change. And I find that, you know, that's a real challenge for women that that the assumption so often is that the care responsibility falls to her as opposed to him. Um, I don't want to sound trite here, but, you know, you come from the Fine Gael party. You know, the Enterprise Minister is Leo Varadkar. The Justice Minister is Helen McEntee. Fine Gael has been in power for uh, 11 years or so. So is there not um, something that your party is able to show that it has been responsible for changing things, apart from the, the difficulties that are ongoing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, the, uh, these are the, the problems that I'm not, that I'm highlighting are not necessarily 
legal problems, legislative problems. They're like, for example, my, my the, the in-house lawyer, it's absolutely clear that she's entitled to, to, to equal pay and there's a structure there for her to be able to mediate and, 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 and to follow that up. What I'm saying is that culturally, the choice really wasn't a real one for her because of how that would impact her reputationally within the commercial world. Um, similarly, you know, I mean, Damon English in, in the Department of Enterprise, you know, he and I talk about this motherhood gap all the time um, and, and how to try to target that and how to try and target the commercial world to try to respect, you know, the idea of working on a consultancy contract until 2.30, to try to highlight the, the, the cultural issues that are there around men taking four-day weeks. Like, I'm a Fine Gael TD and I've been speaking about this for as long as I have been a TD because what I'm doing is bringing the lived experiences of my contemporaries into the debate in the doll. And part of what I was talking about last night was how important it was that those lived experiences were reflected um, and were talked about and were amplified. And isn't that exactly what you and I are doing now? And thank you for, for doing it. That's exactly what we're doing. And Jennifer, could I just ask you, I was struck by another part of your speech last night where you said that one of the things that you find is that you're constantly invited to these woman in politics type forums, you know, to talk about being a woman in politics, how difficult it is, how to get more women into politics. And in a way, that in itself seems a bit tiresome that that has to be done. How do you think that uh, the line can be drawn where those types of forums are useful without becoming, I suppose, a little one-dimensional and not maybe getting to the heart of the problem? Well, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I personally, I wouldn't use the word tiresome as such. I think it needs to be noted because it takes quite so much time. And what it does is continually remind you that you are, you know, that you are different, that you're living in a more challenging world, etc., etc. Whereas a big part for me is just having the facility to just get on with the job, get back to my constituents, do my work, Work, focus on all of those things. And what I was saying last night was that very act, which is, you know, which is actually extremely well meant, you know, whether it's from a research perspective, people are genuinely interested. There's clearly a societal, you know, we clearly have a representation problem with women. People are really interested in that. But it isn't necessarily the women who are currently elected that it is their job to spend their time fixing it or it's not their job more than it's anybody else's job. If, for example, uh, Brendan Griffin is my colleague across the corridor, if he got as many invitations to talk about this challenge in society as I do, there'd be no issue because everybody would be talking about it. But when it is women's responsibility to fix an underrepresentation for women or where it's perceived in that way, but that's the, the, the precept sort of behind it. Um, we ask you, but we don't ask your, your, your male colleague. Uh, you know, those, those things, I'm saying it much less well and much less, much less um, carefully than I, than I did last night, perhaps. But, uh, but, but the point I'm making is that I can talk about, like, uh, for example, I'll give you the example in Trinity College. I remember I was sitting in the doll, Ken Corley was making his re-election speech. And I was looking around and it was one of the first times I thought, gosh, actually, <laughs> there are actually quite a lot of men here relative to my previous <laughs> experience. And Ken Corla was speaking about the Women's Caucus and, you know, what they had done. And I was yeah. thinking, yeah, OK. But and I got this invitation from the Trinity Politics Society to come and talk to them. And I thought, brilliant, you know, actually something I'm, I'm, I'm qualified to talk about here. You know, I've an academic background there. I'm elected. I worked in politics. But what it was actually was to talk about being a woman in politics. And I remember just feeling the sense of disappointment. You know, it could have been about anything. It could mm. have been about anything at all but and then last week I was in Trinity in the in the Phil again and it was about feminism and I, I said it to them I said you know you, you know 
every time I come and spend time doing this, I'm actually making it more difficult for the young women of this audience to be treated equally because I'm spending time reinforcing this narrative that women talk about women in politics instead of the general government balance sheet, the peculiarities of Eurostat and what they do with affordable housing bodies onto balance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like complex technical questions of government mm-hmm. and legislation that are that are real things and that uh, I can talk about just as easily as, as anything else. And really that's the point I was trying to make. I'm not sure if I've said it very well. No, no, I think you've expressed it. Just in a related um, topic, because it was something that you were also working on a cross-party basis, it has to be said, and it was both with men and women, which related to access to maternity hospitals. Just as we were coming to air, the HSC has said that um, from November 1st, all maternity services can provide access for nominated support partners to access inpatient areas during normal visiting hours of 8am or 9pm. Does that sound like the issue is going to be resolved to you? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. And as long as that's um, applied across the board and um, that there's no compliance difficulties, I certainly hope that that is the case. We highlighted a number of weeks ago when there was a nightclub trial, how ridiculous it was that a heavily pregnant woman could go to the nightclub with her partner, you know, with the certainty that they would be together, but not necessarily if she went into labour the following day. It's ridiculous. Jennifer Carol McNeil, Finnegale TD for uh, Dunleary. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, just moving on and looking ahead to what's going to be happening um, next week, we're going green really. We're heading into the build-up for um, COP26, which is going to be held in Glasgow. That's Conference of the Parties to the UN Environment um, Conference. It's going to be a big week, not only because in political terms we have something of a story to tell, even if it is slightly delayed. Yes, we're waiting for the carbon budgets. There was some... Uh, I- Perhaps they were going to come out last Friday night. They seem to have been delayed probably because new people were appointed to the Climate Advisory Council. But this is kind of a staged process and all the steps have to happen in order to get those carbon budgets. There's been some reporting on possible emission cuts across various sectors. We'll have to see how that is borne out. But there's a lot happening on this over the next couple of weeks. And uh, I was going to turn the tables on you, Paul, because this is an area you know very well. So we are waiting for this. When are we going to get it, do you think? Well, I think that um, from what I've heard is that the Climate Change Advisory Council, as you said, the new members were presented with an almost finalised carbon budget, which is basically five years um, of how much carbon we're going to be able to emit. And they're going to have two carbon budgets and an outline for a third. So like basically a 15 year plan. Um, And the newer members felt that this was probably one of the most important things they were ever going to decide on. So they wanted a couple of weeks to to assess it. As I understand, you know, they haven't completely cleared the lines yet. So they're due to meet again next week. It's possible they could clear it or could be further delayed. Now that would push the government's timeline back. They'd hope to have it um, sorted out before um, Glasgow you know, Eamon Ryan was in the Doyle today saying he now accepted it would be early November. But once that is published, then they still have to get into the real fun bit where they're going to have those sectoral emissions. So you've got an overall plan for five years, but you have to decide how much transport or how much agriculture or how much energy are going to be emitting. And that's going it's to going be to the fun It's going to get real, basically. You know, the, the, this, the aspiration <coughs> has been there. The overall targets have been set, but we're going to now see how do you really get there? And that's where it's going to be difficult. Yeah, and there is an Irish thing of signing up to stuff. You know, you want us to have legally binding targets. We're going to do it. But once I come back to Sandra Hurley, say individually or for your sector, it now means you have to do this and you have to do it sharpish, then there's usually a different reaction. And I think that's going to be a a fascinating thing and it's going to be a rolling one all the way through um, November. So definitely one to watch on top of what's happening at an international level. And the key thing there is whether um, previous promises of about 100 billion euro of a climate fund to assist and developing countries reach their goals and whether or not that's actually going to be realised or it's going to be pushed into next year. So that's one to watch. Bringing it back to 
domestic stuff. And one of the key stories um, from Donegal to Clare has been the question of MICA protests. Um, we've known that Dara O'Brien, um, the Minister for Housing, is due to bring some form of plan to the three coalition party leaders and then they're going to do a deal. Do we have any clarity yet on, on that hop, skip, jump, Sandra? We think it, it looks like it's being delayed. Uh, you know, I think uh, protesters uh, uh, had been, campaigners had been expecting this sooner. It looks like it's, you know, it's very complicated. We know there's very large sums of money involved. It's probably going to stretch out over several years. It's not all going to be done in one year. It'll be prioritised. So perhaps uh, it, it looks like probably into November. Now, next week, the doll is off. Um, we think there's going to be a cabinet meeting, but it may not be a week where a huge amount of business is decided. So I think you're looking at into November. November for that. And obviously, MICA protesters are keeping the pressure on government and on those individual TDs and counties affected. So that really is one to watch because the numbers are just huge and we keep hearing that. Yeah, they keep seem to be um, going up. And there is a sense that there's also going to be some form of political price to be ultimately paid. And that's exercising all of the parties, whether you're Donegal all the way down to Dublin. Indeed, I think it was Regina Doherty, the um, uh, senator from Fine Gael, who was saying um, in the podcast a couple of weeks back that um, when some of the meetings they were having internally within Fine Gael, they were saying, you mightn't have MICA or Pyrite yet, but it's coming to you fairly soon, I think. So even if you're not in a hot zone, there's a sense politically that um, this is one to watch because, you know, you could find yourself in the soup pretty quickly. Is there anything else exercising you think that's going to be coming up? Uh, well, weeks? Paul, I <clears throat> wanted to ask you your take on Tuesday's announcement. I was off. So, uh, you know, oh, I think first we, we need to, <laughs> I don't have the insight that you're going to have on this, obviously, but I wanted to, just a very important point of clarification. Um, Paul, when were you last in a nightclub? That is a good question. Um, I was thinking I might actually be in a nightclub tonight. <laughs> Apparently, they're going. Some in we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon. Some of the clubs are saying they're going to open at one minute past midnight. So that wow. means in less than seven hours, I could be in a nightclub. Total immersion journalism. Yeah, just and to you get have straight to be there. in there. Yeah, um, which is probably far more interesting than the last time because I'm so old now I can't actually remember back that far. And what was your That's sense on, uh, on Tuesday? Um, <clears throat> You know, there's been a lot of criticism that the detail wasn't ready. I'm not so ready. sure about this, the, you asking all the questions. Yeah, I know. I have, to say. I have to say I'm quite enjoying it <laughs> over here. Um, it's good to take some days off and then you can come back in and just ask all the questions. I'll say, I know and nothing, I'll ask you the questions. must know I the like answers. Um, there's been some criticism about the lateness of the decision and a feeling from the sectors that they should have had guidance sooner. What's your take on that? <clears throat> I think it must have been possible to have some form of scenario thinking that, you know, Scenario A happens, we're just going to open up everything. Scenario B, it does seem that um, the government is having to do an awful lot of explaining. This is Thursday, the clubs are to reopen on Friday. And when I walked into the podcast studio, the publicans and nightclub owners said they still didn't know when they were going to be meeting departmental officials. So it just does um, have a, a smack of last minute. Um, I think to a certain extent, though, the government really is just saying this is something that they're going to have to regulate themselves. There will be guidelines, but it's going to be up to the nightclub owners and also up to the individuals going into the nightclubs to be looking after themselves. Maybe this is living with COVID. Big Brother isn't going to be telling you what to do anymore. It's something you're going to have to negotiate yourself. And uh, what do you think about... So this is the last, last question. Yeah, yeah, this is the very last question. Uh, did it seem, was there any dissent in government? You know, Neffet left it open to them. Neffet said, you know, there's no point pausing. Uh, it's not going to be better in a few weeks time. So you can reopen, but with COVID passes and with masks and all the rest of it, you have to work out the sectoral guidelines. Was there any dissent in government or any kind of 
you know, and any kind of feeling that some were more more cautious than others? No, there, there was that sense that um, they wanted to stick to that red line they had. What they opened, they continued to open. So that was the fundamental. Once um, the Neffet letter came through saying they didn't think that there was going to be anything to gain by not opening um, clubs and, uh, and late night venues, there was a sense of, well, uh, uh, we're not going to be more conservative than Neffet sort of the raison d'etre is to be when the door is open then you could walk through it so there wasn't any huge um, sort of dissent on that particular issue but you do get the sense there's a little bit of unease they're just looking at that and um, what Michal or Leo Radker the Thornish was talking about the Twin Peak mm-hmm. you know rolling into November Covid numbers going up hospitals getting into more difficulty due to limitations on, on things like ICU numbers and whether you know, that red line may have to be crossed in which you've opened up stuff, but you're no longer able to open it given it's only six mm-hmm. weeks away from Christmas. So I think mid-November, that's that's really where the rubber rubber hits the road. Mm-hmm. But um, before you get the chance to uh, ask any more questions, Hurley, I am closing down this podcast immediately. I'd like to sort of thank Sandra Hurley for her participation <laughs> um, today. I'd also like to thank our guest from Finnegale, Jennifer Carol McNeil, from coming in. Um David Murphy is our editor, Dimitri on sound. And we also have a sort of a, a special day because um, one of our producers on the podcast, Jack Good, is going to be getting married um, this weekend. And so we want to wish them the very best and um, hope they have a fantastic weekend with all those restrictions eased. Thanks very much for listening to us. And um, please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. But until next week, take care.